how can I grow as a Bible communicator? And, and I'm talking specific skill development. So if you're going to learn racquetball or play soccer or whatever, you know, like where do you start? How do you grow in this? And all of us need this. And I want each of these guys to comment. I want to throw in on it. And Ethan brought up a good point. He's done some secular sales training where they really teach you how to close a deal, kind of manipulate your customer towards an outcome. I want to just say from the outset, that's not really what we're talking about, okay? If that's what we're thinking, it's just like from the get-go, like how do I get them to do this? Um, and really the focus of a gospel-shaped ministry and, and, and communication is, how, no, how do I help them understand the word? How do I engage their heart in this timeless, life-changing truth? And the truth will do its own work, okay? Um, so I, I want the focus of this part of the conversation to be, uh, how, do I, how do I become a better, okay? All of us have had to listen to somebody who thought they had the gift of teaching or preaching. <laughs> and their 10 minutes was the most painful excruciating 10 minutes you ever had to sit through. And then we've listened to somebody that truly had developed a skill of communicating and 90 minutes goes by and you're going, whoa, where'd that time go? Okay. Um, so what is that? Let's talk. Obviously there's some gifting there, but, but how, how can, because most of us in some context are communicating. Okay. How do we grow our skill set? Kurt, you Start us off. No, well, I would just, just to start us off, um, would, would say that when you look at the qualifications of a preacher, uh, a, a bishop, elder, uh, you're going to see a bucket load of character qualifications. I think it's like 16 uh, character qualifications. And then you're going to see one ability. And you're going to see he, he needs to be apt to teach. So aptitude... You know, do some people have a gift for teaching? Sure. Is teaching a gift? Yeah, sure. It's one of the gifts. Do some of you have the gift of teaching? Absolutely. But does that mean, absent the gift of teaching, you cannot become an effective communicator? No. It didn't mean that at all. It's like uh, some people are gifted at the piano. They have a, uh, or, uh, natural natural talent, I should, would be the word. Others develop the aptitude. You can develop an aptitude to teach if you're intentional about it. And I would just say this, if you are um, called to ministry, then you are called to develop that aptitude. And honestly, it is the, it's the obligation of a, an ordaining council to make sure that you have that aptitude. So if you squeak through ordination without it, you'll know, get it now, remedially. But you ought to develop an aptitude to teach. And this is something to which I've given a lot of attention over the years. Uh, I am nowhere near where I want to be as far as communicating. It's, 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 it's a constant. I remember when we were moving from um, our old building in Pennsylvania to our new facility. This would be 2009. And our, our maintenance guy at the time had uh, all of these cassette tapes um, how would I define a cassette tape? Um, uh, he had all these cassette tapes, and he said to me, and, and, I, and I said, what are those? He said, uh, the, they're the uh, master. They're the master copies of all the sermons that you've preached for the last 13 years at this church. He said, what do you want me to do with them? And I pointed, 
to the dumpster. And he thought I was joking. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not joking. Throw him away. I don't want him. Because I, I you know, if, if, if you're like me, you know, you look back at, at I wouldn't want to hear my 20-year-ago messages. Uh, I would hope I've grown. I, I'm discouraged by some of the things I've said. And I'm discouraged by some of the ways I said them. I remember when I first started preaching and, and consistently uh, and, and, and have my messages recorded. When we started a church in Connecticut, none of those messages, thankfully, were recorded. But uh, when I came to Harvest, I was really, in, a, in a, the first time in my life, my messages are being recorded. And I would listen to my own preaching every week, not because I was a narcissist, but because I wanted to be hard on myself. And I, I learned more from being hard on myself in those early years than any other I would. Ha- I had so many. Um, I had so much verbal clutter in my in my in my speaking. Uh, there were. I filled every pause with with some catchword. There were patterns of speech I repeated that I spoke way too quickly. Just a number of things, and so, you know, when you learn how to golf, they tell you. You can't learn more than one thing at a time. So if, if I were to teach you how to golf, and I'm not a good golfer, but if I were to teach you how to swing a golf club, I would concentrate on one swing thought every time, So every, every lesson. So this lesson might be just, we're just going to keep our head down. We're just emphasizing contact, good contact with the ball. Or, or maybe, the, maybe the next time we just concentrate on an inside-out swing. Or maybe this time we're just going to concentrate on having late wrists. We're just going to con- just that one thing. So when it comes to preaching, you know, this is a, a, it's a marathon. So if you're developing your communication style, the next time you preach, decide on one thing. Uh, I remember I used to do this all the time. I just it was a I don't know what it was. I, I broke my nose when I was uh, a young high school uh, teacher. I played in a scrimmage game with the teenagers, and I just I broke my nose. And I don't know why, but I would, I would always just touch it like this. And, and everyone in my family would make fun of me, because I'd, pre- I'd preach. I'd do, when I was thinking about something, I'd do this. I don't know why. It's good. It's good it wasn't this. But, uh, and, and I remember, and I don't do that, but it took me, a, it took me time. It was an, a, an intentionality to get rid of that. I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to go a whole sermon without doing that. I do it. And, and so have that one swing thought. Do you speak too quickly? Do you speak, um, do you use a certain phrase uh, redundantly? Is there, do you say, you know, you know, you know. Do you want to stop that? Practice. And practice. It, you say, come on. I didn't come to Connecticut to hear Advice like that. Listen, the most important thing you do is communicate. It's your craft. It's what you do. If you want to be more effective, you're going to have to do it intentionally. So just a couple thoughts. Yeah, cluttered speech, talking too fast, and having a tick. I felt like you described my last session. That's what I felt like. Um, uh, the, 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 the... Swing, how to do it correctly and how to improve it. 
Um, I think the biggest problem we have is most people are trying to do it without the golf ball. A lot of people in our movement are trying to do it without the golf ball. And, and I would, in, improving speech patterns. I, I, I want to improve my speech patterns. And, I, and I, the gifting, the giftings, and then the, the context of ministry. Um, my improving my speech pattern is so that I don't become a distraction from someone hearing the word of God. Right. If they're counting the number of times I have my ticks, or, or if they're saying, man, slow down. And I, I always have a New Year's resolution that I'm going to have a slower speech pattern. And boy, I'm stylistically great for about a week. And then I get back. So much I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I, if, when I'm stuttering, stuttering, uh, when my speech patterns distract from the word of God, I need to figure out how to clean that up. But I do think the bigger problem our groups have is, um, I've heard some people preach incredibly no Bible. <laughs> about nothing. <laughs> and I would rather preach the entire Bible horribly than to preach no Bible incredibly. Write that one down. Tweet that one. Um, You were talking, we were talking, um, Kurt, just about the, the, what passion for your subject brings to your delivery. Do you remember the, the, the comment you made to me? And I want you to unpack that a little bit. The, the essence of your delivery is, your passion for what you're delivering, you, you, are, you are excited about it. You're eager to get it out. You, you know it's going to help people. Yeah, I mean, so many of the messages that you and I hear, we're not, we're not convinced that the person speaking it believes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and nobody wants to believe what, what you don't believe. Yeah. And if there's not, if, you're, if your message is not vested with... Not not a, a homiletic passion, but a but a, a sincere, authentic passion. You know, authenticity it, it just comes it just comes out. You know when people are real. You know when they're fake. And do you have a an authentic passion for the subject matter? If you don't love the Bible, they're not going to love the Bible. Uh, if you don't love your message, they're not going to love the message. It's you know it's 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 caught taught that whole thing. Isn't it interesting that Paul said to Timothy? Let no man despise thy youth. Don't argue with them. Be an example. Just shut them up by how you live. And then he said, give attendance. So pay attention. Make this a, a, a matter of intentionality in your life. Give attendance to reading. Public reading of the scripture. You see, they didn't have, church members didn't have the Bible. They didn't have uh, a means by which they could have devotions. They didn't have daily devotionals that they ordered and Bibles that they read on their cell phones. So the Word of God, the enunciation of it, the delivery of it, was of primary importance. So give attendance to reading the way you read it. Make sure that you're reading it with the right emphasis. You're reading it, giving it the proper delivery, uh, giving it the proper weight. Give a task to reading, to exhortation. Make sure that when you then comment on the word, when that, that it's something that has captured you because to exhort means to come alongside. 
So the presupposition is that this word has captured me, that this word has been inculcated in my own life, that I am passionate about understanding and obeying it. And that's going to come out. Hey, come on. Come on, jump on in. The water's fine. Come with me. That, that's preaching is come with me. Come on. It's that exhortive. So give attendance to that. Be intentional about that. A reading, exhortation, and then doctrine, which is codified teaching. Think about the way that you're going to unpack this truth. How am I going to give it the sense? Uh, here it is. Talk about EIA, right? Explain, illustrate, apply. So every, every point you give in screen, you ought to preach in an expository way, and then as you're exposing the truth of the Word of God, see, see it, see it is, see, see. Yeah. So I said this, see it, see it here. Yeah. See, don't don't take my word for it. See it, see where I got this here. Okay, see. Now let me illustrate. Okay, window that lets the light come in. Okay, then let me apply. Right, see. Now move on. Preaching in that sense is so predictable. Reading, so that's the authority. That's where the message begins with the Word of God. There's the there's the there's the subject matter about which. Scott just spoke. And then exhortation, that's the passion, the way by which I call you to obedience. And doctrine, uh, that's the, those are the hooks to say, okay, here's what it says, and here's what I can come back to, and here's how I understand it. So Paul, Paul said, Timothy, you're a young preacher. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. It's really not rocket science. You know, the, the, the things that Scott just said, really that's what he just taught us. He just taught us as an, as, an, as an older preacher, he just taught a, a, you know, a bunch of younger ones. I think I'm younger than you. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, how to do those three things. What do you, what do you guys feel are um, mistakes we make that, that lose people, that uh, they check out? I'll, I'll throw one in. You guys developed this. When a man gets too microscopic, you know, the altitude at which you look at Scripture, you're going to look at a 30,000-foot view? You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to get microscopic on me? In other words, are we going to parse every Greek? Are we going to spend three weeks on one verse? You know, just the complaints I hear most from people are, you know, we did a study of that book for eight years, and it was so much microscopic that I couldn't stitch it all together. And what, what loses people? I mean, again, just... Same Bible, same commitment to exposition. But again, if they've checked out on us, um, where do we lose them? I think there's a lot of places where you lose them. Um, I do think you need to... Restaurants, great restaurants. You go where it's great food. But it's the same food every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, If I don't give them something to come back for, they're not going to come back. If I don't give them something to come back for, they're not going to come back. Uh, and the, the sequential, and I know we're t- talking about that because it's, there's times for topical. Yesterday was very topical. Um, uh, but the sequential, if you're going through a book, has some stickiness to it too. Um, you're in context. Remember last week what we talked about? I remember that. And then rolling into, and then next week, there's some stickiness to that. Um, one of the things that early on is, um, inappropriateness uh, in the pulpit can be very distracting. Oh, um, I used to have this great joke about Southwest Airline, only airline I fly, and about how you don't want someone sitting next to you, and then it's usually the two biggest people that come on, and it goes towards a, a fat type. 
um, and they wedge you in. You don't have to put your seatbelt on, and it's, it's cheap humor, cheap humor that offends. Um, I, I have a illustration that illustrates really well about, and so I, I haven't used that in about 12 years because it's just I realized um, it's not worth a cheap laugh. Um, a, another illustration about how the giftings are his, he gets all the praise. It's a hunting illustration, and in uh, in one of the punchlines in there that's so humorous, and and then a retarded deer walked under my stand. Um, my background, I didn't realize how sensitive that is. I, I had one of the best men in my church was in tears, following me into my office, and I'm going, Ted, what's going on? And he goes, you don't even know what you did, did you? Do you? And I, I said, no, what's happening? And he goes, my daughter, who's a special needs daughter, and you, don't, you didn't even tie that together, did you, that, that that would be offensive to me? And I said, man, Ted, I'm so, I'm so sorry. You'll never hear me use that word in the pulpit again. Right. You'll never hear me use because right. it, it's not worth distracting from the message that we're given. That, let's talk about that for a second. I, I said retarded one time, immediately apologized. I didn't mean to say that. I was talking about Osama bin Laden. This was an open house. This was like a big outreach day. The room was full of first-time visitors. And I, uh, I, I, I had this illustration. <laughs> our, staff is already, our staff remembers this. First-time visitors. I had this ladder. It was a, a great uh, 20 year, 25 years ago Bill Hybels illustration. It was really, it's really still a good illustration. Top of the ladder, you put Billy Graham. Bottom of the ladder, you put uh, Osama bin Laden. You know? And most people in the room say, well, I'm probably not as good as Billy Graham, but I'm not as bad as Osama bin Laden. So you put yourself in the middle of the ladder somewhere. You know? It's just an illustration that even though we think we're good, we're really still sinful. And... Um, and, and then you, you break it down and go, it's not about a ladder, it's about the cross. And it's a good illustration. So I, I'm all into this, and these people are right there. And I said, now most of you in the room wouldn't, wouldn't say you're as good as Billy, but you, you don't think you're as bad as Obama. And I meant Osama. I was literally just a, just a slip. And immediately when I said it, I just panicked. Because I just insulted the president. And our church is very diverse. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of new Christians, a lot of ethnically diverse, and I just, I, I fell apart. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And they rolled. The church fell apart with laughter at me because I was tripping over myself to apologize. And I totally lost my sense of where I was in the street. That was hilarious. They still laugh at me for it. Um, but I truly, genuinely felt that I had disrespected the office of the president in that moment, even though I was no Obama fan. I don't make jokes about fat people. Um, um, I've heard so many preachers do this. Um, my daughter messaged me recently that she heard a preacher talk about, um, he said this in front of thousands of people, and he said, some of you girls think you have a, uh, a soda bottle figure, and for too long it's going to be a two-liter if I said that, our our church would be just massively offended. You know, uh, we had a tour college tour group in, and the leader of the tour group, there was a couple of Asian young people singing on the group. One of them was short, uh, a girl, and one of them was a was a young man. And and when he was introducing them all, and he meant well, and the kids played along. I'm sure they'd done this all across the country. 
he introduced them, and he said to the girl, this is so-and-so, and he said, stand up. <laughs> and she was standing there. She's short. He said, stand up. Oh, you already are. You know. And then he, this is so-and-so. He's from Vietnam. Of course, they all look the same to me. He just literally just made jokes. You know. Now, the kids were cool. They'd heard him do this all summer long. They didn't care. They loved this man. They had an endeared relationship. Uh, but I had five people after church email me, call me, come by. I felt, oh, pastor, I felt so bad for those kids. Why? Oh, the way he was humiliating them. And I had to, to each of those people, I had to say, you know what? I said, there's a, there's a backstory there. Those kids love him. They've traveled all summer together. It's just in fun. They get it, you know. They probably make fun of how tall he is or how big he is. You know, it goes back and forth. Talk about, you're very appropriate when, when I hear you. Well, that, yeah, different different contexts. And, Self-deprecation is appropriate, yeah, yeah. you know. So if you're gonna joke, joke about yourself. Um, my 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 stepdad was awarded the Connecticut Educator of the Year Award in 1985, right here in the state. Uh, an outstanding principal at Ealing Junior High School in Manchester for a number of years, and because of that, he was put on a committee the steering committee for education in the 21st century and went down to the White House and did some special things. I say all that to say this. They brought some of the best administrators in the entire country together. And and it was a training session, not, not unlike this. And in that training session, one of the presenters showed a video of a teacher teaching a classroom. Uh, and this... this uh, teacher was wonderful. She was just um, engaging and coherent. And, and, and uh, So they were asked to rate the teacher based upon her teaching. And they gave her an A. And the, the presenter continued to give his lesson. At the end of the lesson, he said, I want to show you another. Um, I, want to, I, want you to have a rate, I want you to rate something else. And he, he showed a classroom of students that were listening to a, uh, a lesson. And he showed how the, the, the students were listening to a lecture, and they were totally disengaged. Uh, they, they looked bored. They looked uh, disinterested. Um, would you rate the teacher? You couldn't see the teacher, but rate the teacher based upon the response of the students. And they gave the teacher a, a very low grade. And it was at that point that the presenter said, would it surprise you if I told you that the teacher, it was the same class? Same class. And the principle was this. If Johnny hasn't learned, a teacher hasn't taught. It's not your job to think that you do a good job or to think that your peers do it, for your peers to think you do a good job. Sometimes we say, do our preachers think this is good? You know, did, what, is this acceptable within our circles? Is this a good Baptist message? Is this a good fiery message? Is this a good alliterated message? Is, no, did your people learn? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, so know your audience. And, and how, does that, how does that flesh out uh, practically? Okay, so in my life, I used to be a big alliterator. 
I'd literate all my messages because I just, I just think that way. It was easy for me. Outlines are for the preacher. It helps me to remember, and I could remember the message more easily. And so I would alliterate my But you know what I found out? I found out that as I did some reading about it and just got some honest feedback from the younger generation, you know what they told me? They said it sound, sounded canned. It sounded contrived. It sounded over-polished. And I, I, I got away from it. I said, I'm not going to, matter of fact, these guys, Josh and James, they, they know if I preach an old message at faith because it's alliterated. <laughs> um, but I, I've learned that I, I, I've, I've just, I'm trying to adjust my communication methods based upon how people are hearing. And so be, seek criticism. Look for honest feedback, not for glad handing. You want a- honest feedback about your message? Ask your wife. <laughs> She'll give you honest feedback. Uh, and, and just... Or your, your son. Or your son. <laughs> uh, let's bullet point real quick. I'll, I'll throw out some bullet points of things I do to try to grow. Asking for feedback is huge, okay? Uh, in fact, there's a great book called Thanks for the Feedback. I would encourage your whole staff to read it and go through it together. Uh, how, how, to, how to be emotionally <laughs> secure enough to just seek and receive feedback. Um, Listen to yourself, scrutinize yourself. Identify your own bad habits. Um, what annoys you when you're watching or listening to yourself? And then work on one thing at a time. I agree with Kurt. I, many times I'm talking too fast or I had filler uh, or little insecure things that I would try to do and try to unlearn, okay? Um, I've read, and I know you guys have too, I've read everything I can find on becoming a better communicator, both Christian and secular, okay? Mm-hmm read a book a few years ago called Talk Like Ted, okay? Again, you got to be careful and be discerning because you're not just trying to become a good salesman. But you do want to engage hearts and attention spans. Um, Keller's book we're going to give you tomorrow about uh, preaching. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Some of them are more technical, like how to build a message. Others are more practical, like, like how, to, how to hold attention, how to move forward in your message. Um, An excellent one on Practice. that is, is um, and I'm not a, a fan of necessarily of the, of the way he does church, but an excellent communication lesson is uh, the, the uh, one by Andy Stanley called How to Give a Talk. And again, I'm not advocating that you do your theology the way he does, and he said some suspect things. That's not the discussion. The discussion is he's a great communicator. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about communication. You know, yeah. Whether he's an unsaved man. Okay, uh, communication. He talks about the five questions that you ought to be able to answer when you give a talk. Number one, you know, what do I want people to know? Mm-hmm. You ought to be able to say that in one sentence. It ought to be the topic of your text, by the way. So what do I want people to know? Can you say it in one sentence? Number two, well, why do I want people to know this? That's, the, that's your introduction. Why do I want people to know this? Okay, what do I want people to know? Why do I want them to know this? Number three, what do I want people to do? Because truth is actionable. How, does this, how will this show up in practical ways in people's lives? It's sometimes you have to think the, your way into the lives of your audience members to say, okay, how, here's, a, here's, here's a widow. How would this truth apply to her? How can I suggest this? What are some ways I can get her jump-started? Uh, here are some teenagers, a young couple. Here's a brand new person in my church. How would they hear this? How would they distill this truth and how would they apply it? What do I want them to do? Why do I want them to do it? 
paint the preferable future. In other words, if they were to uh, imbibe this truth and practice it, how would it change their life? How would it change their marriage? How would it cause them to think differently? How would it, how, how would it make them a better worker, a better son? How would they have a better marriage if they were to practice this? Why do I want them to do it? And then number five, how will they remember this? And I love what Scott said a moment ago, and that is sometimes we get trapped into a methodology that we've used just because we've used it for a lifetime, like an altar call. And I'm for altar calls. We give altar calls, you know. I'm not on Wednesday nights, we don't. But, uh, you know, and not always on a Sunday night, but, but, but uh, you know, typically I, I, every Sunday morning, um, so I'm for it. So please understand, I'm for it. But what, what he says is, how, question number five, how will they remember this? And you ever want to, you ever want to be humbled? Ask your wife on Tuesday what you preach Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah. Ask a church member on Thursday what you preached on Sunday. So how will they remember this? And, it, it, and, and they remember, you give them, give them mnemonic devices. Okay, so... Um, what he said, he gave a couple examples, but one was this. He said, I preached on stewardship, and I think they have like 14,000 people in their church. So he said, I preached on stewardship, and he said, I was trying to find a way by which they could remember the, the topic of stewardship. And he went through it. What's the one thing I want them to know? I own nothing. God's own, God, God, God owns everything. I manage what I have for him. Now, God, I own nothing. God owns everything. I manage what I have for him. So, principle of stewardship. So, he said, how will they remember this? So, here's what he did. He passed out to every church member that day a ledger sheet like an accountant would use. And here's what he said. He said, here's your homework. I own nothing. He owns everything. I manage what I have for him. So, this week, when you buy something, the only thing you have to do is write it down. I'm not telling you to buy anything. I'm not telling you to start tithing. I'm not telling you to buy different things. I'm just saying whatever you buy, because it's not yours, it's his, it's his money. So if it were your money, you don't have to write it down, but it's his money, so you write it down. So if you buy cigarettes, just write it down. Yep. You bought that with his money, okay? You bought... right. Wow. So do you think that people would remember that truth? And honestly, I'm poor at that. I, I need to, I, even telling you that, I, I'm, I, the Holy Spirit's smiting me saying, you need to do a better job at that. You know, how will they remember this? Because it's truth. Just things we can learn. Um, our society, too, is such a media, such a short attention spans. Um, in my opinion, don't be afraid to use more than just your voice. Don't be afraid to use more than just your voice. Uh, we use PowerPoint. We use fill-in-the-blank outlines. Uh, I want them to hear it. I want them to see it. I want them to write it. I want them to repeat it. And it's just a method of teaching. If I could, if I could do scratch and sniff outlines, I would do scratch and sniff outlines. Innovation. Uh, innovation. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I used to early on, and I stopped for... Like, I count it all but dung. <laughs> yeah, dung. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Lasting impression. Um, I, I used to use more early, and I've started using more again, obviously, from the Tupperware object illustrations. But that can't become the sermon. The text has to be the sermon. All that does is try to help people to understand. There's a lot of visual learners, a, a lot of visual. And when I've started doing it again, it's just, man, that helps me so much. Um, and I can't overdo that, but... Um, uh, I'll use at times, not very often, but if there's a, a media clip that fits perfect, a 30-second, Jerry Kramer, the ice bowl, 
that whole illustration yeah. about that on the thumbs up. Yeah. I have a clip of Jerry Kramer uh, on the ice, but that block yeah. to where he walked it in. The guy that got the credit wasn't the one uh, that made, made it happen. It was the one that was carrying the ball, but he got credit from the coach. Yeah. Um, as I'm telling that illustration, that, that, that one guy on, in the Olympics that blew out a hamstring and his dad came down, yeah. I have video of that. And, and so typically we won't turn on the audio. I'll just start telling the illustration and at the same time, they'll show it on the screens, and you'll see so many people just so engaged. Don't be afraid to use more than your voice, but you can overdo it, and don't do that at the expense of the text. I want to encourage you to listen to a lot of preachers. I think I was Adrian Rogers, I heard say, you become a good preacher by listening to a lot of different preachers. And not that you emulate any one of them or trying to mirror or mimic them, as much as you're studying their their skills, you're studying their ta- their their strategies and their abilities, and you know, there's times I'll hear MacArthur, and I'm like, man, I want the substance of John MacArthur, you know, and then I'll hear Keller, and I'm like, man, I want the intellect of Tim Keller, and then I'll hear a Stanley thing, and I'm like, man, I want the creativity of Andy Stanley, the captivating ability, you know. And then I'll hear Chip Ingram, and I'm like, man, I want the passion of Chip Ingram, you know? And then I'll hear Jim Cimbala, and I'm like, I want the compassion of Jim Cimbala. And it's just hearing a lot of different guys, you know, hearing the substance, hearing how God uniquely uses each of their voices, and then saying, okay, God, uniquely use my voice, you know? And, um, but but analyzing, being critical of your own self Unlearning bad habits, learning new ones, studying the good skill. You know, something that I've tried to do is when when somebody got up and did something in speaking that captivated me, I stop and I go, what was that? Because that's what I want my church to feel and experience. What, What locked me into that, you know? And I want that, you know, and that's what I'm trying to identify with you guys. What do you guys have to say? Anybody else out here want to throw in on this or... Question, uh, what, what's helped you? What, what resource, what book? Come on. I think everyone's going to be different on that, but it's until you lose their attention. You know, it's like if you're, I really think some guys, I probably need to be shorter. Um, you know, Mark Dever goes, what, an hour and 10 minutes? Um, Keller's 35 like almost like clockwork, and I want him to go 50, you know? So uh, the, the times I've asked that question, it's like, don't preach any longer than you can hold their attention. Yeah, if they're not, if they're not listening, they're not learning. Yeah, find if your If they're not spot. listening, yeah. And you'd rather quit with them wanting more than go one minute too long and say, oh. Who else? I thought I saw a hand. Yes. Let's get the mic up here real quick. I'll go, you know, you spend 15, 20 hours on a Sunday morning sermon. So my question is, uh, how do you guys deal with, with focus, you know, uh, you know, to really immerse yourself in a text and, and break it down and deliver it in a way that's natural to you? Um, I, I find it's such an incredible amount of work and energy, and I know you're just not going to get around that, but is, are there things you do to kind of shorten that to where you can kind of get in the zone quicker to really get to where you know you need to get in preparing a message because I, I feel like I personally waste a lot of time 
trying to get there, yeah. if that makes sense. So let's each talk process. You yeah. talk about it'll all be different, and we got to find it, out it what's really works for you. But really what's will. yours? The zone. If I'm in the zone, I'm not getting up out of my desk until I fall out of the zone, that sweet spot. Uh, if I'm if I'm frustrated and I just can't, it's just not all. But I have that luxury because I have the, the staff. I, I um, uh, the other thing is I come in early before the phone starts ringing so that I can just really, really dive in. Uh, and the other thing for me is it's, I just enjoy, of course, I didn't have any Bible till I was 18. Uh, when I was 18, I was just amazed that God gave us a book. And, and people say, what's your hobby? My, my hobby is I really enjoy breaking apart Ephesians or Philippians and just figuring what's in there and what's, how's God speak to me about that and how does these things connect? And it's, it's enjoyable for me. But, but again, if I'm in the zone, um, I'm going to write three, four sermons in the zone. If I'm not in the zone, I'm getting up and just breaking it up, going for coffee at Starbucks and then coming back. Your process is mornings. Yes. Um, good. Um, talk specifically, though, you... Is there a process to, okay, you read it, now you're notating, you now you're cross-referencing, is there, is there a breakdown to that? We'll come to Kurt in a second. Yeah, Kurt's probably better at it than I am. Okay. As far no, but as I want to know what yours is. My, mine is absorb it, absorb it, absorb it, Good. swim in it, bathe in it, absorb yeah. it, just, just absorb it. Um, in, it's an intuitive, intuitive Bible study, uh, just where um, Psalm 23 you read it enough times, you're going to start seeing stuff that you never saw. Right. Um, the spatial relation between the shepherd and the sheep. Um, he, he leadeth me. He's in front of us. Um, he maketh me to lie down. He's above us. He restoreth my soul. He's lifting us. You look at the spatial relation, he's everywhere, everywhere we want him to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the different locations that the sheep is. Green pastures, still waters, presence of his enemies. Um, and just picking apart that, that chapter and just, just there was a fellow at Dominic's, a big dude. I worked, when I was in college, it was a union um, grocery warehouse. He would take this, this chicken wing. I mean, a big dude. He would put it in his mouth and and then he would pull out one bone at a time, clean down to the down to the bone. Um, uh, all I want to see is everything that God put in that text. I don't want to see any any more than what God put in the text, but I want to get everything that's in that text. I want to absorb it, um, and then you're not going to be able to bring everything everything to the pulpit because part of it is okay. What do I bring and what don't I bring? Um, but until you absorb it, I'm not able to really deliver it. That is really good. What's your process? Well, d- to your question, um, don't ever feel as if any study is wasted. It is not wasted. You might not find context in this sermon. You might feel as if, man, I went down that trail. I spent all that time chasing that. I didn't even use that. All knowledge feeds all knowledge. So sometimes people will ask me quantifying questions, like how much time do you spend on a message? Impossible. That's impossible to quantify. If I'm preaching on a a passage in the Gospels, I mean, I spent three years of my life comprehensively studying the chronology of the life of Christ. Comprehensively. So how how, how, does does that count? 
as sermon preparation for this sermon? Sure. Or, you, you know what I'm saying? So it, sometimes you could spend three hours preparing for a message now, but it's built upon all these other hours at other times. So don't feel like as if you've wasted time. Process. I, I would say the same thing as, as Scott. To me, the, the forgotten word in sermon prep is saturation. Yeah. Get ahead of your text. It's one of the yeah. wonderful yeah. things about expository yeah. preaching. Get ahead of it. You're not waiting until Saturday. Yes. It's read, reread, read, reread. Yes. And I'd say this. If you're not used to it, and that some of this will become almost intuitive the more you do it, but if, you, if, you, if you're not in the habit of this, here's what I would say. Read the text. So I'm in 2 Samuel 12 on Sunday, but read the text and read it with a different with a different focus every time you read it. So I'm going to read it this time. I'm going to pay attention to verbs, just verbs. Okay, block diagram it the first time. I'm just going to pay attention to verbs. Okay, um, next time, I'm just going to pay attention to direction. I'm just going to pay attention to geography. I'm just going to pay attention to time frame. I'm just going to pay attention to, and, and, and once you start going through the text and paying attention to different aspects of grammar and structure, it's amazing. And don't, don't outline too early. I outline last. Because when you outline now, you've created your box. And then the tendency is going to try to want to fit things into the box you've created. So don't create the box too early. You know, let the Holy Spirit speak into. That's why I say don't read commentators too early. Do the homework ahead of time. Do go through. You know, I'm going to do my word study. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to look up all the the parallel scriptures. I'm going to study out the parallel passages. I'm going to look at all of that. Do that ahead of time. Get all. Get that in your mind. And then what you're going to find is when you read the commentaries, like, okay, I agree with that. No, no, no. I think he was wrong on that. Why did he? You're going to be. In, in the driver's seat, instead of allowing some dead man to guide your theology or to guide your message that week or whip something together that never really came into you, it just came through you quickly, and that's going to people are going to pick up on that after a while. Uh, saturate to me is the key. You have yeah, you swim in it. So for me, my process is Monday. I read and I just get my head into that text, and it's going to be in the text all week. And then I'm trying to get, like Kurt's saying, I'm trying to get into the heads of the author, the characters. I'm trying to play out. You know, the thing that Scott did yesterday where he started showing us the chippiness between Peter and John, I never saw that. But man, that was, you know how many hours of thinking about that, that that took, okay? And comparison, and and that takes margin. If you're in a hurry, it doesn't happen that way. It takes downtime where you are thinking about that scripture, okay? Another thing that's helped me is I open a note on my phone in my notes, and it's just my sermon notes for this Sunday, and it's, it's just random thoughts. How many of you find out, you'd just be in line at Costco. Yeah. Yes. You'll be thinking about that text, and boom, a, a thought will come to your mind, or an illustration. Yeah. Or, you'll, or, you'll, or you'll be scrolling your news feed, and boom, that, you, know, you want to use that. Yeah. And I throw this stuff all week long into those into that notes. Okay, it's my downtime, but I'm building this repository. And it's, and Wednesday for me all day is just focused mostly on Sunday, and that's when I start to notate the flow, write down observations. I'm with Kurt. I don't really start to f- finalize the outline till Friday. I will try to build my outline and then read the commentators. You know, and I will pick four or five commentators and read what they have to say. 
try to find out, am I way out to lunch? Or is there an orthodox body of substance that, yeah. that supports where I landed? Yeah. You know, I want to validate my observations. Um, and, and, then, and then Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning early is kind of a refining, purging time for me. Like, and here's what I'm saying at that point. Because I feel like Monday when I'm looking at my text, I'm like a squirrel at the base of a gigantic oak tree. And there's like a million branches on this tree in this one text. Which ones do I have time to go out on? Uh, which, which part of this text do I explore and how do I apply it? And I feel like by, by Friday, Saturday, I'm asking God, okay, I've, I've marinated in this text all week. What, what do you want me to focus on for Emmanuel Baptist Church tomorrow? And, uh, and by then, God has really given clarity. I think I want to say this, then we'll go back to Scott. What, um, the value of, of saturating in context. Okay. If, if I just preached John Mark, went not with them to the work, I could build a great message about quitting. It just wouldn't be biblical. But when you, when you pull out of that telescopically, you look at the whole story of John Mark, you'd build a different message. And I wrote this down. What people have told you all your life, the Bible says, often it doesn't actually say that. And it's when you study the word in the flow of the narrative. When you, you know, when you take it out of the flow of the narrative, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. I will get me unto the great men. <laughs> Jeremiah went to the great men, and they didn't know, they, they were wicked too. That's, that's the point, whole point of that story, okay? Uh, studying the word in the flow of the narrative gives you that, that comprehensive clarity of what's really going on. And it's, it's out of that that you speak. So be careful about just, just picking one verse and going to town and not connecting it to the whole narrative. What were you going to add? Yeah. And that's where the pre-understanding of the text is the biggest obstacle to the proper understanding of the text. Right. Um, I, I want to challenge everyone in here to do one thing. It's very, very practical. Um, everything that we said about the preparation for this week, I want to move it back one week. Mm. Um, Steve Covey's... Uh, four quadrants of creativity, yeah. uh, urgent and important. Um, uh, uh, and then you have urgent, unimportant, and then you have not urgent, unimportant, you know, twirling your pen. Um, and then you have not urgent, but important. The, the, the biggest level of creativity and productivity yeah. is in the non-urgent, but important. Yes. And if you're cramming to try to get a sermon done by this Sunday... And that panic and that the time and then with the rush, you're not going to get everything you can out of that text. You're not going to be as prepared and see it all. But if you just, this week, this next week, write two sermons for Sunday morning and then stay a week ahead. Um, I would, I'm about four months ahead on, on Sunday morning, um, about three months ahead on, on Wednesday night. But what happens is, no, it's... <laughs> I don't do anything else. That's all I do is just start reading, give myself continual prayer in the ministry of work. But what happens is, even in sermon preparation, because I don't go prepare Sunday morning and then prepare Wednesday. Okay, su Sunday morning, um, uh, we, we just finished up um, Second Peter. Uh, we were in First Peter. Uh, uh, and then go uh, uh, prep. A, a Exodus is where we're at Wednesday night. And then go back in and then go back in. Because I'm ahead, I can do four sermons in, in, in Exodus, I'm in the flow. 
I'm in the context already. And so the legwork in my mind is already fresh. Boy, I, I can write sermons a lot quicker because I don't have to go from the context of Second Peter. Okay, well, okay, now where was I again in Exodus? And, and, and you're more productive. Uh, you're more creative. And not creating things that aren't there, but seeing all that is there. Very practical. If you do that, I promise you, um, it helped me in a great way. Just getting more than just... Uh, and God knows what our church needs four months from now on Wednesday night. The preparations of the heart and man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Well, well, the Holy Spirit just led me to preach something else as I was walking from, the, from my chair to the pulpit. No, it's you saw a family come in the back door and your emotions are taking over. And did it surprise the Holy Spirit? Didn't the Holy Spirit know four months ago what was going on on that day? And so getting ahead isn't a bad thing. Getting ahead is a good thing because then you're in that quadrant where you can really take it in, take that chicken wing and get every piece of meat off of that thing. We did two years through Luke and, you know, I mapped out the book of Luke six, eight months ahead. Now I didn't prepare all those messages, but I had placeholders and documents open and ready to throw things in there. One of the things I saw in the book of Luke that I wouldn't have seen if I had taken it too microscopically Luke is very particular to point you the direction that Jesus is looking when he's speaking. He said to his disciples. He said to the crowd. He said to those Pharisees. And, and it's very important that, you know, I, I realized, wow, I've heard so much of this mistaught because the, the preacher didn't pay attention to who Jesus was speaking to. You know, I've heard Jesus' message to the Pharisees imposed on followers of Jesus. Like, like he's preaching it to his followers. And he wasn't. He was preaching it to his executioners. You know, following the direction that, that Luke put out there was, was really, really important. You don't see that unless you really immerse in the text and, and pay attention to those things. Um, here's what I want to do. Are there other questions on sermon prep or communication before we wrap up? Yes, sir. Uh, we've got two. Anthony and then right in front. Uh, touching a little bit about what you said about you know, the Spirit led me to say something different yeah. on the day of. Yeah. Do you leave allowance for any audibles or even like multi-choices in, in preparation? Um, yes. And, and the guy, the Adam, who does the PowerPoint, gets a lot of phone calls or texts late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. Hey, change, change that word to this, add this. If I'm going outside of the text, I don't put the text on the screen because I want them to open their Bible look at it through the Bible. But if I'm giving a cross-reference outside of the text, um, I want them to see it rather than spend time turning to it. Uh, and so I'll, I'll shoot them those things and, and try to be as prepared as I can. Probably two times in the last five years, I've said, I've said take your outline and turn it over. Um, uh, we're going to go a little bit different direction. And so there's margin, um, but not not as free-flowing and just butterfly, you know, kind of everywhere. Um, there is a lot of intentionality, but that's who I am also. Is there, is there any relation between your personal walk with Christ and devotional life and your sermon prep? Inseparable for me. I've been discouraged from doing that. That's I'm, I, I've heard, I was too, but I don't know how to separate it. Uh, yeah, I, I just find it more... You know, for me to be totally my Sunday morning immersed. preaching is the overflow of my walk with Christ. Period. But I'm saying, as far as what you're studying, yeah, I can't separate them. Okay. The only thing I do different is is I also do the one year plan, and I 
my first thing I do is just read the next three chapters. Uh, but the bulk of it is in the sermon prep. That's the bulk, and that's where God speaks to me. If God's not speaking to me, my heart's not going to be warmed. I'm not going to be prepped to, to deliver what he's spoken to me about. And even if your devotional reading is separate from your, your study for your sermons, to, to, to say that they would be disconnected is schizophrenic. You know, because all, whatever you learn in the Bible, reading the Bible, is going to be a lens through which you see the other parts of the Bible. So, um, you know, it, for me, it's all one. To separate my worship from my vocation is incoherent to me. So it's like, okay, I'm going to walk with Jesus. Okay, now I'm a preacher, so I'm going to study my message. You know, it just makes it like my message is my vocation. And no, it's the overflow of my worship. That's a good question. Yeah. Yes, sir. Brother Venable. I thought of 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul said, I keep my body under subjection, lest at any means when I preach to others, I should become a castaway. You know, it doesn't matter how good of a communicator we are. If we're not making that application, if we're not living it, we're on that road to becoming a castaway. We won't be communicating in the pulpit. And so I don't, I'm like you. You can't separate the two. If it's not you, it's hard no, to preach. Beware of a heart and mind that can preach something that you're not moved by or that you can't, that you're not practicing, you're just telling people to do it and you don't do it. I mean, that's a dangerous place to be. Any other quick questions on communication? Sermon prep, Ethan. Guard against reading into the text. How do I guard against it? Um, you, you, you keep the high level. Does it fit inside of the high level of the theme of the book? If it's just radically different, then there's the, there's the central theme of the text. There's also the central theme of the book. A uh, central theme of the book is that thread that, for the most part, every other text hangs on. And then in that chapter, you narrow it down a little bit. And as long as you're staying inside of the central themes of those bigger items, uh, it pretty much gives you mooring to where you're not going to be totally way off base. And it's one of the primary benefits of expositional preaching is the guardrails are built in. That the guardrails are built in. Okay, Andy? Uh, for those of us that are, are bivocational, and 15 hours on one message can't happen, for sure. Um, and I've got 15, 20 hours. If I really, I feel like if I milk every bit of free hour, free time I have to do a Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and a Wednesday night, um, I'm, I'm rethinking a little on how we do our service schedule as well. Um, but what would you suggest I emphasize, or for anyone else, emphasize on in study and to trying to not expedite it, but you know what I mean? make most of the time that I do have. I would, if it were me, I would rely on, uh, for my other services, I would rely on a curriculum I could borrow and, 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 and use other people's thoughts that I relied on. I would I took, take whatever hours you have, five, six, eight, and zero in on one really good substantive morning message and focus on doing one thing. And then I would try to develop some others in my world, even if it were video content, by the way, with, with people I trusted. I'd try to fill some of those other needs. And I would just say to the church family, I'm bivocational. So I'm going to put major energy into this, what I can, and then we're going to supplement with other things. And uh, God will honor that. Not only will he honor that, but God blesses capacity and our willingness to use the capacity we have. And so if there's a lesson from the loaves and fishes, it's get, you know, give God the time you have. He'll maximize it. He's going to do the work with the message, and he's going to bless it in ways that you cannot imagine. Give him what you do have, and he'll bless what you don't. That's good. Anybody else? Yes, sir, in the back. Andrew. Come on, Derek. Good night. 
this is this is good. We'll do a couple more, and then we'll switch topics here. You know, just about the last comment. Um, the last few years in London, um, I've um, effectively had a bivocational ministry where I was doing two different, very different types of ministries. Um, and so the church um, had a limited amount of time as well. So one of the things I found in the bivocational preaching, to second what you said about your main Sunday morning message, but then often if you're a bivocational pastor, you're working with a very young or new or struggling small church. And um, it allows you to bring some of those other elements into your preaching very naturally, such as your perhaps your devotional life. You share what you discovered in your devotional life. Um, Bible stories, um, creating a, a, uh, a theological framework around Bible stories. It allows you to walk through the Romans road, teaching people things. So your, your focus can become more of that, that teaching um, type of approach, things that you already know uh, that you can you can put on the very bottom shelf and help your people along. So I found that that really helps compensate for the lack of time. That's real good. All right, uh, back here, and then we'll come up to the front. Yeah, I've heard a lot of different thoughts on this. Uh, should your preaching be a shotgun blast or a rifle shot? I mean, you know, should you fire everywhere or hit the one spot? Or maybe some pluses, minuses of both. Thoughts on that? Well, I mean, to me, if you're faithful to the text, you don't always know where the bullets are going. I mean, you don't always entirely know what bullets you're firing. Yeah, so to, to me, our focus is to, to I, I want to expose to people what the text says. And then beyond that, I'm going to suggest some applications, but I might miss the application. It's humbling for us preachers when people come up to us after a message and say, wow, thank you. The Lord really spoke to me in this way. And I'm like, I didn't preach that. I did not <laughs> preach that message. You know, the Holy Spirit you know, does that. It's an applicational question. Um, and it's a great question because that's where you struggle. And here's where I, the wall I hit is like, I got a room of 500 adults. How can I even begin to touch all their needs and applications? That's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So don't stress out on application. I mean, take some general applications, but you're really good at that. And I think we got to be careful not to re- overreach and, 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 and draw applications that aren't really there. And the shotgun blast for me was when I tried to go chapter by chapter in Proverbs. Um, after about chapter 7, it becomes a shotgun blast. Um, just random. And I probably would do it differently the next time. It'll probably be more topically as I go through the last half of Proverbs. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, it's being careful with the text, making sure that you're not... And, and all of these are methods. Um, I'm, I'm very passionate about exposition, sequential exposition. Very passionate about it. We used to do preach the word stuff and try, trying to just focus Bible preaching. Um, Jake has some different methods. I think they left to go to a restaurant. Anyway, uh, he has some different methods than I do. Uh, mine is an exhaustive, uh, almost a manuscript type of an outline. He'll, he'll go in with like a three by five card. Um, but, but I promise you, I promise you, he's as good, better with exposition than I ever was. Uh, and he does different methods to get there. Praise the Lord for for grab some of these ideas, some of these things. It may fit you, may not fit you. Getting up early, I'm a morning person, fits me. Uh, getting a week ahead of time, um, it, it doesn't all equate equally at times. I asked probably 25 pastors about their weekly schedule, and several of them said, Carrie, you're going to ask this question, in, and, and it's different with every guy. 
So the best advice they, they said we can give you is find what works for you, be who you are, and do that. Um, so we had another question about communication, and then I want to change channels for just a few minutes, and we'll wrap up and head to dinner. Yeah, I know this uh, changes with every ministry, you know, services, staff, volunteers. I'm thinking about it almost for like a, a new church plant that we're going to be having, you know, may not have the volunteers for like a Sunday night or for whatever, even for Sunday morning, if you don't have people to teach the classes. If you've got a bunch of kids in the room, um, do you try to connect the message at all to those younger listeners that may not have a, a you know, a complete grasp of different words? You know what I'm saying? Even with teen- young teenagers, do you really just try to focus on the adults and, and reaching to them, or do you also, would you, I mean, you probably have classes in your churches, but would you, what would you do with that to try to connect with the, the children, young teenagers, things like that? I mean, it speaks specifically to individuals and to groups in your message and, and work, especially in a group this size to, if you speak to one person, you speak to every person. And so if I'm preaching to a group of teenagers, uh, just as a single, I, I might look at one teenager for a while and talk about you know, living purely for Christ, you know, and giving yourself to the Lord. So I'm connecting there, but everyone else is feeling, whoa, that's connection. They're feeling connection too. So when you have a varied audience, sometimes I'm going to look at a child and speak like I'm speaking to a child. That child's going to be connected, but all the other children will feel connection as well. And so it is the challenge uh, that we preachers have because we do have diverse audiences. And that's part of sermon prep is thinking your way into the lives of the people uh, to whom you're ministering. Yeah. Think your way into their lives. That's application. They're taking the text and saying, so your application is you're offering some ways by which this could be applied in their life, realizing the Holy Spirit can trump that and go beyond that and use that and not use that. Yeah. But it's just a way by which we're making those connections. That, that was my takeaway from Timothy Keller's book on preaching yes. is yes. sitting in the different seats. Yes. Okay, how would this apply to the liberal businessman in your church? How will this apply to the conservative blue-collar guy in your church? Uh, how would this apply to an unsaved, to the saved, um, sitting all of the ch- all the chairs, try to, you know, as much as you can? Okay, I'd like to do this. We'll go, we'll go maybe it's 412. We'll be done for sure by 430, okay? So let's give it maybe 15, uh, 30, you know, 15 to 16 more minutes of, of attention span. But let's turn the corner to developing a, a gospel... Uh, centered theology, okay? And um, so for some in the room, many maybe, this is uh, like, I've never heard of this, or maybe I've been warned against it or whatever. Um, so I wrote down a statement, and you know, you could, you could talk, talk about this in multiple different ways. This is my view in a, in a statement. Um, the, the gospel, well, first of all, it is the message of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, Okay. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The whole of Scripture is an unfolding gospel narrative. Um, and the, the Bible is a narrative that contains a systematic theology and a practical instruction for life, uh, but it, it's all wrapped up in a story, okay? It is a story. It's, it's more than a story, but it, it is first and most centrally a story. So... The gospel is our salvation by faith. It saves me by faith. It shapes me by grace. It motivates me by love. And it restrains me by truth. Uh, that's just my thoughts. In other words, 
the gospel, a gospel and a theological view of scripture uh, that takes that storyline and allows that storyline to shape my theology and the theology to shape my philosophy. Okay, so in other words, and, and, and the book we gave you yesterday is the first book I would tell you to read if this is like new verbiage to you, okay? Well, stop and think about it. The gospel's not new verbiage. <laughs> so we're not introducing any new thing. It's, it, it all goes right back to the narrative of Scripture, but it is a more full view of Scripture, okay? I can't tell you how many uh, friends I have that have only ever been taught the Bible through a sliced-up, diced-up, theolo- systematic theology or a sliced-up, diced-up, almost Wikipedia life manual. You know, like, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. Like, it's simply reduced to a set of instructions for life or simply reduced to um, a, a set of rules and do's and don'ts or simply reduced to heroic stories and figures, okay? No, it is bigger and more full than that. And everything the Bible instructs, everything the Bible um, mandates or advises flows out of uh, uh, that storyline of God's redemptive historical narrative. We talked about it on the podcast, Okay. So you, you get to the heart of that, and it, it is building, um, it is, it, it, to, to dive into that, to study, to read, is to build a lens. It's a, to build a, a perspective that you've never been handed, okay? At least I hadn't been handed. I had been given good doctrine, and I'm disparaging that. I had been given great systematic theology. I had been given great life instruction, philosophy, practice of life, wisdom from Scripture. I hadn't been given a historical redemptive view of Scripture. And so the way I, we explain on the podcast is you could take your car all apart in bits and pieces and systems, and you can know all the parts of the car and not know how to assemble it and go somewhere in it, okay? And when you take all that systematic theology and assemble it into a gospel theology, suddenly it, it takes you somewhere, in your heart, it shapes you, and um, and it really does produce a philosophy that leads to behaviors in ministry that are shaped by the gospel. And so, we're always wanting to know where's the boundaries for contextualization? Where's the boundaries for, for music? Where's the boundaries for dress? Listen, the gospel shapes your conscience in these ways, and and speaks to these things. You know, we couldn't give you. We've tried this for for decades, for generations. The don't wear this, do wear this. Don't sing that, do sing this. And guys are always trying to pin me down. And even when I wrote Music Matters, and there's a, two or three pages that I would like to change because I've learned a lot. Okay, but the bulk of that book was, hey, there's great power in 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 godly music, and I specifically stayed away from styles in that book. I specifically didn't. So a lot of people make it say something it doesn't say. I specifically said, don't try to pin me down on styles. Understand what the music is doing to you and how it's shaping you. And, and if it's shaping your heart for Christ, then it's a good thing for you, okay? Um, but we, we've tried to, we try to set up these boundaries that then culture ch- changes and moves on us, you know, where the gospel theology, theology will shape your boundaries, okay? And again, God in the Whirlwind was, is probably my best recommendation as a primer and there are many other books that we could speak to. What, uh, what would you speak to? What would you speak to? How can somebody shape a gospel theology?
Uh, well, you know, I think within our group, just to be specific to us, we were we were sold two uh, half truths. And I, and I say we, I, I think this applies to most of us, because I think I kind of know where most of us have come from. Number one, we were sold the the we were sold the false notion that the gospel only applies to justification. Right. You know, so the gospel, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our starting point. You know, it's the way we get in, okay, now. You know, so we leave the gospel in our rearview mirror. And then because we have a, so because we have subscribed to that erroneous idea of the gospel, then we have also subscribed to an erroneous view of legalism. That if that's the gospel in my rearview mirror, then legalism only applies to justification, works to salvation at entry point. But we, know, we understand theologically that salvation is inclusive of justification, sanctification, glorification. Um, and we understand that the gospel is as needed as the operative principle of my life as it is as the founding principle of my life. And so having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And your fundamentalism, as we and I hate to reduce it, but to, but, but I think it can be reduced sometimes to much of it to, well, we we do a great job preaching the justification gospel and guarding that, and do a really poor job preaching the the gospel of sanctification, and we begin in the spirit. And then we immediately go to, you know, the flesh. And don't do, don't do, don't do, 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 and be this, and have character, and bless God. And, and, and what that creates is a frustration uh, in the hearts and minds of people. Because you know what you find out? That your best efforts aren't good enough. You know what you find out? You find out, wow, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I confess that I need his power. Oh, Jesus, save me and help me. Do for me what I cannot do. Well, isn't that what you said when you got saved? And that's what you say while you're being saved. Every day of your life, I can't, he can. I confess, I trust. The process of sanctification is no different in principle than the punctiliar moment of justification. And I think that's a, it's a mistake I made. It might not be a mistake you made, but it's a mistake I made. And so my preaching was dress up the flesh preaching, which didn't help anybody. So what do I do with these sermons? Throw them in the dumpster. Uh, there was on Family Bible Radio a guy that would give a three-minute blurb on parents do this. He'd quote a verse. Um, or as children obey uh, and everything that he said was right. It's not what he said, it's what he didn't say. The guy that gave that was a Mormon. Didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Um, and for the gospel-centered, for me, it's not, not serving for the victory, but serving from the victory. Yes. Oh, that's good. Um, okay, the verse, as, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Boy, it, it needs it needs the the gospel, and and it, and it impacts how we live so much. Husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Uh, the fact that okay, my my problem isn't that I don't love God enough. My problem is I don't realize how much He loves me. That's good. 
That's, that's the difference. Yeah. And, and we try to lay it at the feet of, well, if you just loved him more, you would do. If you loved him more, you would do. When I fully realize how much he loves me, we love him because he first loved us. And to me, that's where the difference is. But that is awesome. Probably not. Probably not. Um, oh, yeah, my problem is not the teenager's problem. We just need to love God. My problem is not that I don't love God enough. My problem is I don't realize how much he loves me. That's my problem. And that's where this whole thing of salvation and the Tupperware that I'm selling after the... Anyway, um, uh, I got some of the gospel realized, okay, my sin's forgiven, uh, and then I started to begin realizing his righteousness. And, and the more I realized all that I had in the gospel... Um, but, and it was the prayer of the apostle. You know, I pray that you would know the, to yes, know the love of Christ. Yes. It's length yep. and breadth and depth and height. You would know it. And it's the grace of God that bringeth salvation that hath appeared unto all men. That's what's teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously in this present world. That's what teaches us. And as soon as we think it's to attain something, if I do these four things, then I, then I will. We're setting ourselves up for disillusionment. Well, yeah. I can't improve on how much he loves me. I can't improve on the position that he's given, by the grace of God, given me. And when I realize that grace and that love, well, that's what motivates me uh, to be gracious and loving uh, with that next person. Uh, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Uh, why are we patient? Why are we patient? Because of how patient he's been with me. Um, that's, in my opinion, gospel-centeredness. This is some of the best of the last two days. I hope you mark this time down on the, on the archive and go back and listen to it when you're awake, um, because <laughs> be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved you. I'm not trying to get Emmanuel to love God more. I'm trying to get them to understand how much he loves them. Okay, Josh, shout out on the, where's the microphone? Run it across here. Man, now we're getting the good stuff here. Um, the podcast, the two episodes with Josue on theology was excellent, by the way. Josue and, and Carrie, really good. Um, what are the dangers, because... I know for me, it's been like a seven-year process for me to try to like, I knew what God was teaching me, but I didn't know how to articulate it. I read some books that kind of articulated it for me that I reread and reread a little bit. Um, What are the dangers of, for instance, we've talked about leading, you know, last night we talked about um, change, affecting change in our church today. What are the dangers of understanding those portions of this event, but not understanding true gospel theology and taking the practical things of leading and taking the practical things of, of developing change, but not, it's not rooted necessarily. If we're still preaching moralism and we're still preaching the same exact way that we preached five years ago, what are the dangers of trying to create change in those things without it affecting our gospel theology? The church of Ephesus. There's your case in point. Yeah, yeah. The, it, 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 I, mean, I mean, I mean, Revelation two. That that yeah. one generation removed from the church for which Paul prayed that they would know the love, you know, and then left that love. In, in other words, the moorings of that love. You know, their their first love that that love that Christ had for them. 
not being immersed and motivated by. They had the form, but hey, he said, you know, you're not a church. I'm going to remove your candlestick. It be, it's unsustainable. It's going to hit a wall. Phil? And we'll come to Brian. Yeah, this is what Paul prayed for the church of Ephesus. Uh, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Yeah. His prayer request for them was to know the incomprehensible love of God. Yeah. Yes. And, and the gospel that was preached to them, they're already saved. Yeah. Right. To the brethren. Right. To the brethren. Right. To the saints. Brian? Galatians, Ephesians, both. The gospel has been Good. preached. Yeah, right up in front of, of him, Brian. Good stuff. Oh, I'm going to try to keep my thoughts <laughs> contained. Um, Christianity's first call is not behave, but behold. Yes. Um, yes. That was a great quote that, that I've just had impacted me. And I think what you've preached on, Pastor Kerry, just over the years is we, we, we have this fear that if we preach the gospel that we won't be able to modify behavior right. in this whole behavior <laughs> modification right. mindset. And so I find a lot of objections based out of that fear through my preaching over the last four to five years. One being I've, I've been told I'm too Christocentric. Yeah, believe it or not, based out of a th- this this fear that we have to be Trinitarian, like I'm not Trinitarian enough, but it's like, for me, it's like, well, isn't Jesus the fullness of the revelation of God? Bible. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Yeah. Um, and then typology, when, when, when going to the Old Testament, we do have to be careful of that. Um, what are some... I guess just some practical tips that you guys would recommend in that. I mean, I think that if Jesus uses an Old Testament example, yes. then, then, then that's open. And, and even like with the David and Goliath story, yeah, Jesus doesn't necessarily cite that story per se, but he is the greater son of David who slayed our greatest giant. Um, and so just how, how do you guys deal with have, have you faced criticism for this this change in focus, we know that there's been conferences that have attacked this, and not to bring that up, but 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 just how do you handle that criticism, and how do you work through with your people, and how have you seen that play out as far as the change in them and the hunger for this? I in our world, I have not had a lot of criticism as much as I've just had explosive joy. Just people are like, we are set free, and this is the most life changing transformational thing I've ever heard of. I would say in that Christocentric criticism, that's a totally contrived criticism, uh, false dichotomy. One of the men in the room called me one day and said, do you get pushback on the gospel-centric verbiage because saying the Bible is all about the gospel when when the pushback he was getting is, no, the, the, the purpose of God is his own glory. That's the purpose of the Bible. And I'm like, that's a false dichotomy. God's glory in on planet Earth is the gospel unfolding. That's what he's using to bring about his glory. He's glorifying himself through his redemptive story. So it's a false dichotomy. I think you're dealing with insecure people that you just need to sit down with and help them theologically understand, listen, uh, God is going to raise up Jesus that all things are come under his preeminence. Every knee shall bow. You know, Holy Spirit's job is to magnify Christ. So I think that's a false dichotomy, and I would stay on Jesus and, and just... The, the argument of over-allegorizing. Over allegorizing, I, I, I probably over allegorize, but it's it says within the guardrails of 
of doctrine, the guardrails of, I'm not ever stretching it outside of those guardrails. And um, when I fell in love with Charlene, everything reminded me of Charlene. I saw Charlene just, man, the love of my life, my heart. And uh, when I got saved and fell in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't care if I'm in Genesis, man, I'm thinking about Christ saving me and, and just my mind naturally goes there. Uh, and I'm careful not to make more of the text than what's there. Right. Um, but Genesis 22, uh, does, does Christ ever reference um, that incredible picture uh, of, of all of the types of Christ in that story of, of, of and I don't know that he ever says like, like uh, Isaac was in, um, uh, but what a great picture of Christ. Yeah, and, and you don't always have to be dogmatic yeah. You know, you can say, hey, listen, does this not remind you of? Yeah. Is this not a great reminder? I mean, Jesus said to the Sanhedrin Council in, in John 5, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And so he said they testify of me. So I think if we make a mistake, it's probably that we don't allow the Old Testament to testify enough about him, not that we do it too much. Yeah, you're pretty safe with what Jesus said, you know. Um, <laughs> But I, I think it's true that there are some clear, like you might go to judges and go, okay, the guy that cut up the, the guy and sent him all over the place, how's that point to Jesus? Well, the whole story of judges is every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the judge, the man ruling himself failed. So it points to the need for a savior. So you, you ask the question, how does this narr- this part of the story, think of all the things God didn't put in the Bible. Think of all the stories that could have been put in the Bible. Well, every one of them is put there on purpose to point us to God's redemptive story. And Jesus is the pinnacle fulfillment of God's redemptive story. So somehow it all points to him. Um, we got to wrap up. The, uh, what, the, the last thing, uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. for We'll do this tomorrow. We got sent in a question. It's a really good question on uh, invitations. We've all been, uh, we've all heard different things about giving an invitation or not. And I'd like tomorrow morning um, at some point, in you know, five, 10 minutes, whatever, like, how do you do invitations? We'll talk through how we do them. How do you do them? You're going to find out there's a variety of ways to do them. And uh, we'll talk about uh, about thinking through that. And uh, so if whoever was that was that sent that in, we'll uh, postpone that to tomorrow because of the time right now is 4.30. And I want to let you guys go to dinner in a second. So um, let me wrap up with just some closing uh, announcements. Let me go back to my page just to give you a little bit of... Uh, hasn't this been helpful? I'm telling you, my heart has been so encouraged. And Scott and Kurt, thank you so much for your biblical wealth of knowledge and insight and wisdom. Um, tomorrow I do, I was kind of categorizing your questions. Many of them we have gotten to. I'll tell you some that we'd like to explore a little bit tomorrow. Maybe we'll take an hour to do this. Um, mistakes. I was wrong. Okay, so, yeah, that would, that would be an, a, a week by itself. But one man wrote and said, you know, um, our world has not been comfortable admitting where we're wrong because we're always right, you know. Um, And that would be a fun conversation. Where have we been wrong, okay? Um, Most, many of you submitted a question about balancing ministry, marriage, and family. So that was a very pertinent need, okay? Um, And there... Uh, is a wonderful, wonderful liberty in the gospel 
that lets you work less, love your family more, and God's church can thrive. Okay? And it's not about laziness, but it's certainly not about drivenness and anxiety and breakdown. Okay? So we'll talk about that tomorrow. Health. How do you find that healthy place? The best thing I could say is listen to your wife. She's right. Seriously, if somebody told me that, first 10 years of my marriage would be totally different. Okay? Uh, she's right. And she loves you, and she loves your ministry, and she loves your kids, and she wants them all to thrive. So uh, best thing you could do is listen to her and apologize for being a jerk. Um, Many of you asked about motivating the church. I think we've covered a lot of that. um, But I would like tomorrow, like your church has been very generous. Let's talk about how God did that work. Our church has been generous. Your church has been generous. These guys have, have... shown me probably one of the biggest takeaways from Kurt and Scott, my friendship with them. The big, I think the biggest destroyer of pastoral health is um, financial mismanagement. Overextension financially. Okay. I have how many stories? Dozens and dozens and dozens. Many of failure, many of perpetual anxiety and pressure. The pastor became a monster because he built a building. And now he had a mortgage to pay. And the church family just were just crushed. Okay, So these are two men who have immense track records of building and debt, retirement, whatever, and health. Uh, And the models I've studied, other mentors, have not overextended themselves. But they've still got a lot done. You know, it's amazing. So we'll talk about that, and, and Dan will help us with that in the morning. Um, personal health, sustainability, kind of ties with the family uh, theme. Um, the book I want to recommend to you, the single greatest book on, this, on the gospel-centered idea, other than the, the, the David uh, Wells book I gave you, is Prodigal God by Tim Keller. How many of you have read Par- Prodigal God? Okay. I dare you. This will take you two hours to read, and then you'll, you'll be mind-blown, and you'll take four more hours to go back through it. You will never, never think of your Christianity or the prodigal story again the same way, and it's a short book. It's a mini book. Um, prodigal God, uh, in conjunction with that, MacArthur's book, uh, The Tale of Two Sons, is equally uh, strong. It's much longer. Uh, it's the one message I stood before my church family. We spent three weeks on it, and I said, the entirety of this message comes from two books, and I encourage you to read them. You know, um, But a prodigal God, I dare you to get it, read it. It will rock your world, and uh, you will, you will be, di- be uh, a bit dismayed at how much you've been the older brother. And I've, I, uh, it's my, it was deeply convicting. When I got diagnosed with cancer, and I'll let you go, I'm t- sorry, I, got, I went away for three days with Dana, I'm thinking I'm going to die. And we went away, and, and Dana slept in in the mornings. I couldn't sleep. I got up about maybe 5.30 or 6. I went down to the hotel lobby. I just said, God, I just need you. I opened, opened the Gospels, Matthew. And I said, God, I'm going to sit in this chair. And Jesus, I need to meet you. I know you're my Savior, but I need you. And I, I just determined I am going to sit in this chair and, and I am going to walk with Jesus through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in one sitting if I can. I had done my yearly reading and I had done my, you know, one chapter at a time, whatever. 
And I'd done my New Testament survey class and all that, but this was just a totally different thing. And it took me, uh, I think it took me six hours, I'm probably a slow reader, and I was probably going slow, uh, to read from Matthew through Mark, Luke, and John. It took me both mornings, three hours each. I closed my Bible at the end of John, and I said, oh my, I'm a Pharisee, and I have been a Pharisee for a long time. How did we miss this? And it, I, I've, I've never viewed the Gospels the same. I've never viewed my Christian life the same. Um, prodigal God will help you, I promise. So if you're leaving tonight, a couple of you are not able to be here, pick up the book on the way out. It's Keller's book on preaching. I encourage you to get some guys with some guys for dinner. Tomorrow we'll meet at 9. We'll go to noon. We're going to start with Dan Dorner. You're going to love him. You're going to be able to uh, really draw a lot from him. We'll, we'll talk about stewardship and then come to some, close with some of these other topics. If um, I want you to know you have access to the live stream, the archive. We're keeping this archived, password protected. Uh, I, I don't mind if you share it with your team. I'd rather you not you know, send it across the world uh, to, to, to people that are going to blog about us. Um, but, but go back and refer to this stuff, okay? So you will have that. Uh, if you have friends that are not here, we're going to keep that available through tomorrow at noon. And if they register, uh, and thank you for, for helping us with, with the budget on this by registering, um, then they'll have access to it as well. And I want you to know, we're not making any money on this, okay? We're giving these two guys a love offering. We're paying for your meals and your books. I think, we're, I think right now we're 100 or $200 ahead. That's it, okay? It's totally a break-even. I'm not walking away and taking my wife to Disneyland or something. It's, I'm not, it, you, 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 your, your registration covered our costs. That's about it. I just wanted you to know that. Okay, I think we're done. I'm gonna ask Lance to come up here and lead us in prayer. Let's thank these guys. How about it? Give them a round of applause. Really good. Uh, enjoy your evening. Get get with some guys in fellowship. Yes, sir. Uh, we'll give you that. Okay, we'll put that in the in the printed uh, material. Uh, ask Ashley to put it on the printed material. One of you guys. Okay. So tomorrow, and if you're if you're leaving tonight, maybe uh, give your name to one of our guys. We'll email you the contact sheet for everybody. We'll, we're going to give you that, and we'll give you the password on your on your way out tomorrow. Okay. Any other questions, real quick? If you want to walk around the building, see anything that's cool. Brent is going to give a, a kind of a Q&A about our media systems. Those are new over the last couple of years. And the way God did that was a miracle. But if you have questions about what, it's real basic, but it's, we did it with excellence. And ec, we did an economical system with excellence. So we got the best equipment at the budget we could do, you know. And uh, if you're just wanting to know how do we kind of head down this road, there's people in your church that will help to fund this and share your vision, and God will provide for them to do that. But he's, he'll be available tomorrow after we're done to kind of show you around a little bit. Go ahead and pray. Right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so very much for the great conversations that we had today. Lord, I pray that we as men would continue to root ourselves and our families and our churches in the gospel. Lord, we love you. We pray that you'd bless our fellowship now as we go. Praise your name. Amen.